Hello everybody, uh, this is Jonathan Brown from Something Underground Theatre Company. Welcome to podcast number five. Uh, we're right now smack bang in the middle of Brighton Fringe, uh, not physically but um, time-wise. It's the 14th of May and uh, we're halfway through the month. Uh, although now, of course, with the Brighton Fringe extending on into four weeks, uh, we're not quite there um, at half-time yet because that will actually be the 19th, uh, 18th and 19th of May. Uh, during which weekend we'll be doing two more showings of You Can't Watch This Play and alongside uh, um, The Woman Who Conceived the Pill by Sarah Hickingbottom. So um, we were both interviewed, uh, both Sarah and myself, um, by Paul Levy from Fringe Review. And this is a podcast to let you hear how those two interviews went. I'm not going to say much more. Um, Paul got quite philosophical with me which uh, was fun and interesting um, although it got a bit convoluted at times it felt to me um, philosophically but hey and then he was short and succinct with Sarah um, or at least uh, they were with each other so uh, this is what we've got for you um, I'm here to introduce that and let's without any further ado go straight for it First, uh, we'll have uh, myself, Jonathan, talking. I'm not sure when it was. It was uh, well. I think Paul tells you in the um, in the introduction to to the interview itself. Uh, look forward to seeing you. Do come along if you can come along to see the show on the um, 18th and 19th of May at Exeter Street Hall, um, and also the first, second, and third of June. We're on again. Um, come along. You can't watch this play and the woman who conceived the pill. See you soon. I'm here with Jonathan Brown, and we're actually a day before the official start of the Fringe, and Jonathan's back. And Jonathan, my first question to you is, oh, actually, it's going to take a while, but let's see where you go it's with this. a long this. question, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Well, it, it's this. It's, it's that in the future, we kind of call that unknown. And then we might say something, and then we look back and go, oh, I said that. Um, so some people think the future's unknown, and some people think um, that the future is waiting to be known, and there's already content there. When you decide to do a show about improvisation, that is, well, not about improvisation, that isn't scripted, how, how do you not pre-script? Um, I have to be quite careful not to um, rehearse in my head, at some, uh, I, I suppose. And, and at the same time, I, give my, I let myself off the hook a bit in that if some themes... Um, so we're, we're two days away from the first show of this Fringe um, at Texter Street Hall. You can't watch this play. And uh, I, I'm not, I haven't prepared anything. I, I did have a few thoughts in the bathroom the other day. Um, but I've got quite a lot on my plate anyway, so uh, I've got lots of things to, other things to think about. So those things, in a way, will possibly form some of the themes. Mm. But, uh, but before we get on to you, which okay. you will, no, yeah, but, but, yeah. but when, you, when you then, on stage, speak something yeah. that hasn't been scripted, yeah. 
do you believe, or have you had any experience of it? Or when I spoke it, I sort of mouthed the script that's out there. It just hasn't come from me. So it's like potential. Is what's out there, does it have content? Or is it zero and it seems to come from, you know, nowhere? I'm open to it being either, actually. I don't... I guess I don't want to... um... Hmm. Yeah. I think it's co-created in the moment with whoever's there. I think it can come out of zero, out of nothing. I think, but there's also archetypes in the room um, that are playing us, and those archetypes tend to want to be heard as well. Uh, I don't want to get too, as you know, too philosophical about it. No, but you're getting quite mystical if you think <laughs> archetypes, archetypes have a wish. Well, I think so. I think they're, they're, they, they want to be expressed, and uh, I think they play us like puppets. And um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of some archetypes uh, that, that have been playing us like puppets. Uh, the archetype of profit, for example, or of greed, or the archetype of um, uh, um, the sugar industry, for example. It's just a huge, you know, being that has... It's, it's, a, it's, it's, not, a, um, it's not a judgmental thing. It's not a, um, something that has a moral compass. I think it's just this thing that exists and, and that wants to be heard... If it does want to be, yeah, but I, I mean, yeah, and in ancient, in older English, there was a word egregore, and egregore was the sort of the collective willed thought being, and, and that could be the holy grail, that could be a shining light that you all saw when you meditated together before going into battle, it could be the sugar industry, but, but there is some suggestion that when you put a lot of energy into something, the something comes into being, whether you can, can't see it or not, and then you just articulate it well because I what as a as a someone that sees a lot of theater and scripted theater and a lot of improvisation that doesn't impress me when you do see improvisation that suddenly sends a shiver up your spine it's like you know something has been seen for the first time that perhaps was there and someone has channeled it rather than what doesn't seem right, right for me is that things arise out of zero out of nothing uh, right well that's where we might have to disagree because I, I think I think that we can create out of nothing and I think that there is also the possibility that we're channeling something but to me channeling sort of suggests that I am a channel (laughs) and and that we are a channel and although although again I don't deny that that can be so um, uh, I don't know questioning where it comes from I'm not sure it's 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 part of what I that, that that what serves the creation process or the allowing through process, if that's what's happening. I mean, I think maybe it's a bit of both, but uh, I definitely feel that we create out of nothing in the same way the Big Bang created, supposedly. Or, you know, one theory is it created out of nothing, the whole universe, you know, that, that we, you know, I, I sit down at a blank page and it's a blank page and onto it comes a set of characters, if I'm writing, a set of characters, you know, going to a blank space, so into it come a set of characters, a set of beings, a set of thoughts and ideas and yes you know Trump might come in and you know because he's around and uh, uh, Brexit might come in because that's around and you know all those all those beings are around but how they are brought together how they are you know how the paint is mixed as it were that is happening in the moment I think and um, yeah and so so there's content clearly that you're going to draw on as an improviser from what's already out there and history but there are also sparks Let's, let's say the word of originality that, that can't be found in the libraries of the past. Well, again, I'd say that, that hopefully part of that originality is how it's mixed in the moment and, um, and how, it's, uh, um, how the threads are drawn together and how the, um, 
how the uh, oh no it's gone now that, that thought that thought was just there it's like a man from Pollock just walked in um, uh, how the how, how the connections are noticed I suppose yeah, so how the connections are noticed oh yeah I can see that connection and that connection two quite disparate things but and, and maybe I'm not doing that. You know, I don't know who is doing it, generally. It's a you know, part of me, but I'm you know, not, definitely not the conscious ego aspect of me. It's more the... Um, although, the, you know, my ego is right up there. But uh, the, 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 the cleverer, slightly um, trickstery aspect of me is um, hopefully getting in there and um, the muse, the creative twin, is getting in there and... Um, playing as well that's yeah. the idea you know, I think feel the idea is for me to get out of the way Jonathan Brown to get out of the way and to leave space for that creative aspect to, uh, to, to do its weaving so as you as you write the unwatchable play that hasn't been written and also in you know the letter that you wrote to Fringe Review and we, we know of your work you've made a decision oh, yeah. not to script yeah. there is a blank page yeah. in Hamlet's terms you know maybe at some point you just went words 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 and this time let's start with a blank page because mm. we've done a lot of words when, when you decide to do that then um, are you really in the days that because we know you've got the talent and we know that you've got the history and we know that you've got what you have and your reviews and your awards and stuff but you're going to step on a stage in front of an audience and here we are a couple of days before Mm. and I'm still interested then if there's no script what Mm. is there (laughs) there's nothing but that could be what it is that could be the content I mean you know if 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 in a way, it can't work if there is something. It has to, you know, I have to make nothing, um, give nothing space. That's what I mean. I, I have to make sure that there's as little as possible in the way. Not to say that I don't perhaps go in with some techniques and some top tips for um, elucidating, um, eliciting from the space, from the from the room, from the people, from myself. Um, what might want to come, but uh, or so, what so might stre- be there. Yeah, so stretching the definition of nothing. Jonathan Brown in, an, in a silent, empty room, mm. doing an hour. Mm-hmm. That's going to be different, is it, from Jonathan Brown in a room with an audience? Oh, definitely, yeah, because okay. the audience are very so, much... So it's not nothing, then? No, no, it's definitely not nothing. I mean, you know, it's, you know, do it in a blank room, do it in a room with, that's got a history of its own, do it in a, on, in a room that's got a history of its own, on a street that's got its history and its personalities, extra street hall has got a, a long history. Um, do it on a certain day of the year... In May, you know, <clears throat> in a part of the fringe which has got its history, it's all there to be um, drawn upon. It's too much. If anything, it's too much. Yeah, yeah. And you that's know. what I'm getting at. I'm saying you can call it nothing, you can yeah. call it a blank page, mm-hmm. but it's all there at the moment, hidden and latent. And the art of the improviser is just being allowed. I won't, I won't say channel, but that is that's invisible paint that's going to suddenly appear in front of everyone. So. Again, you know, another an, an, another aspect is to, to try and get to a point where all of that possibility is also put to one side, and, and um, right. so so that we, you know, so it feels much more blank. Okay, well, because because in in sort of ancient traditions <laughs> around the time of the ancient fool as well, yeah. in, in the Rosicrucian kind of tradition, that was about meditating on a symbol, and then once you'd be able to reproduce it, you suggested it away. 
and then in that space some other content appeared and then you suggested that away. So I think maybe whether you've stumbled upon it or decided, yeah, what you're trying to do is allow the content to come out and then sh- shunt that aside. Yes. I mean, I mean, that's wonderfully dangerous, isn't it? This I is a that. this is a kind of wonderful. But it's because you're there to go back to if yeah. I get stuck, you know. Yeah. If it I won't be a meltdown because you've got the skills. Well, but also, you know, it's got the thing that you just shunted away is still there. You can always go back to it and say, well, let's carry on with that story. Okay, let's carry on with that okay. um, theme or that idea, and let's let's extend it. Did or just, just yeah. stop, you know. That, that, that's, yeah. what I, that's what I do often is just let's just stop and see what's what's here. Okay, so there's something underground that's going to serve. <coughs> I mean, Excuse me. Is this is this the right time for you? I mean, where did this, to do where, this? Yeah, where did this impulse come from? I've been doing it since 2015, so um, you may not have clocked it, but I, I well, I've been I, actually I've been doing it since before then. But it's 2015 that I first took. I brought it as um, a show called um, Je Suis a Fool's Guide to Cliff Edges, I think it was called, yeah. and um, I did it again at Exeter Street Hall. My mother was dying. Um, she she died on the night of one of the performances. Um, that theme was, so, you know, it it was strong and provided an incredible amount of um, material and chair, chair. Um, and I decided not to avoid it I decided to let it be and, to, and, and the, the show became a hymn a poem to, to my mother and, well, and to death in general and, uh, um, and one of those shows was I mean, one, of the, one of that series during the fringe was, was a bit of a flop a bit mildly there's a lot of people sitting there with their arms folded looking at me and, um, and um, uh, as if to say, come on, impress me. Um, and um, I, I may have been just misreading and projecting, but it was a difficult, a difficult night. But on the whole, since then, since 2015, I've been playing with this format um, on and off each year. A few, mm, I don't know, half, half a dozen to a dozen shows per year. Um, maybe not a dozen, but um, you know, half a dozen to ten shows a year. Um, Doing this, yeah. And you're looking like longer hair and you know less shaven. I think the last time I saw you was oh I don't remember. A couple of years ago. Well, I was doing um, a good Jew, which was I played um, a Nazi, (laughs) so I shaved it all off. But is this unmaking you a bit? Say again. Is this unmaking you a bit? Unmaking. Yeah, because you know we well we're in a world of product everywhere. Even scripts are products, and Ursula is product. And this this journey that an artist can take themselves on can sort of unravel you a bit, can't it? I've been unravelled by a lot of things over the last couple of years. Um, death of my mother, the end of my marriage. Um, it, it's you know lots of things are unravelling. I, I'm I am also in the process of uh, getting a play for a cast um, together, um, which I've been working on for the last couple of years. Hopefully, it'll be in London in spring. A play called currently working title Illegitimate Target, and uh, which is a play about refugees and about um, radicalisation. So. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, um, I'm being undone by, by the process of doing unscripted work and, and fooling work. And at the same time, I'm, I, I love my writing and I'm keeping that structure quite, you know, I'm, I'm keeping going with that work. And I, I hate to say this, but also you hinted a little bit of this, and this is m- me not putting this onto you, this is me talking. Okay. But, but a lot of improv mm. is just scripted, isn't it? I don't know. Well, uh, they play games and they say, give us suggestions, but they've already written the tune and they... Oh, know, it's become right. quite I don't formulaic. know. I don't know, because I've, I've yeah. never been in an improv uh, troupe. I have, yeah. Sorry, I have been in an improv troupe, but it was, uh, it was, it was theatre similar to what I, I do, in, in that it wasn't comedy, it was, um, it was work, um, I suppose, inspired by The Fool, in that uh, we generally go on with 
little in terms of structure and idea. We, we might occasionally turn to the audience and say, do you have a thought or do you have a, um, a feeling or a dream or a question as if to an oracle or something like that, you know, that you'd like us to play with? But we don't tend to... We, we, we in that group didn't really go on with any preconceived ideas or tunes and we weren't there to do comedy either. We were there to do... If it went comic, that's fine, you know, but anything that came up, so it was always there to be... It was always um, the, the, the entire spectrum of human experience we were trying to uh, give space to, and on all emotions. Something I have noticed is that in other art forms, kind of the blank, the blank canvas, some people absolutely decide what they're going to paint, but a lot more has been done in this spirit in visual arts, um, in dance actually as well, than has happened in theatre. And when I look down the two, three hundred theatre shows that are in this programme, there's almost none of what you're doing. And I wonder why. Well, it's a risk. <laughs> quality, it's a quality risk, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, I could come on and have, you know, could have no ideas and, and we could, I could blank entirely and, and um, I could, um, I don't know, freeze. It's always a risk. It's, there's no guarantees in such a space. You've got your script, there's, you know, what the words are going to be, even if they're spoken badly and with little emotion then at least you've got your lines and um, everyone knows where, you know, they're blocking and know, knows where they're supposed to be and the lights come up at the right moment, the sound effects come up at the right moment, yeah. even if the direction is dodgy. It's low guarantee and it's, it's risky. It's very vulnerable making as well to go on stage uh, with... Well, it does feel it to me anyway. It's vulnerable making to, uh, to step out with, with bugger all um, yeah. up my sleeve. But I, I remember reviewing a show called Katie and Rach, which was long-form improvisation. Oh, yes. Rachel, and, um, yeah. yeah, and it hasn't yeah. always... By their own impression, the shows aren't always as good as each other. But right. one of them, I said, I said, you know, anyone watching this would have thought this had been a script written for a year. It was uh-huh. genius. And I've talked to comedians that bring the house down and said, you know, why do you, why do you improvise? Because they do. And they say, because I couldn't write this well. Right. Um, and so there is something precious about going there, isn't there, and what, mm. you're, what you're doing. It's not just a risk. It's actually quite important, isn't it, to, that some people have a go at that. Well, what it is to me, and it's something I've wanted to do since I first um, saw somebody else doing it, basically, um, and uh, went and trained with them and, and spent time with them, Jonathan Kay, effectively. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll never be Jonathan Kay, but uh, I'm sort of doing the Jonathan Brown version of, of, of my best, um, my, you know, my best go at some of, of that ilk of work. And um, yeah, it's it's. Um, some amazing things can happen. Beautiful, incredible, uh, mystical, mystical, as you said. Um, tender and stupid and terrible and <laughs> clunky moments. Yeah. Um, but also I'm interviewing you about a show that normally, you know, we talk about what's the script and how did it get written, how am I doing, you know, on a rainy afternoon, because I can't talk about your show. Or ask you about it. But but it just shows there's there's something there, it's not revealed, and the reason why people should go and see it is the very fact that it's not revealed. It's it's my only selling point. It's very hard to describe, (laughs) you know, in a brochure. You know, um, I'll be coming on and doing stuff um, in the moment, plunges, I think I call it, into the unknown. And um, uh, I I can't remember how I described it in the brochure. It's it's very, very hard to sell. So in previous... um, Incarnations of the show. I've done it uh, with a theme, you know, with the title. So I did, for example, a fooling version of um, Iron John, the story, the Grimm brothers' story, and that that was that gave it a title and it gave it a story background. But in the end, I was improvising around that story. And last year, I 
well, more recently, at the, um, at the end of last year, I was doing a piece which was called Dying to Meet You, and again, death was the theme. So that, that theme was around, and it acted as a... Uh, a little flag to sell the piece with because it is so hard to describe you know empty stage nothing I haven't got any ideas it's all improvised spontaneous but it's not improvised comedy it's something different and um, it's not short form it's not long form it's this form but you are no amateur fruitcake and anyone only has to look they have to look you up to see you know the quality of your company's work and so the fringe is about to start and I know you'll probably get people coming to see your work that have seen your work before but there's also a potential bunch of people out there listening to this interview that are going to think well what should we do tonight and they'll see that your show's on Mm. so this is my last go I'm not that serious with this last question but it's quite kindly meant okay Jonathan Brown what's the title of your show you can't watch this play again and what's it about it's about whatever we find on the night, in the space, in ourselves and in each other. Thank you very much for You're talking welcome. to Fringe Review. <laughs> We're out and about at the Brighton Fringe, we're at Fringe City, this time it's Sunday, so it's the second Fringe City of Brighton Fringe, and we're going to talk about a piece called The Woman Who Conceived the Pill, um, and that's from Brass Tax Theatre, and I'm joined by... Sarah Hickenbottom. Sarah, tell us about this uh, production. Well, it's a fascinating solo show, it's the story, a true story, of the woman who in 1917 sort of envisaged the idea of women having access to birth control in the form of a pill, something simple to take, like aspirin. Uh, in America, she's an American lady, it was also illegal to use and distribute birth control and she thought that law was wrong and so she set about to change it. And this is the story of how women gave women the pill and changed the law. And yet there are still places in the world now where this isn't okay and accepted, is it? Exactly, and and in some respects we're going backwards. Um, And so that's why this story, it's a, well, it varies from 1917 to 1960 when the pill was approved, but it's absolutely applicable today. Many would argue it's more applicable today in um, 2018 than it was 10 years ago, uh, because we do seem to have reached peak peak uh, equality or whatever the phrase might be and so yes women need to bond together that's what happened a hundred years ago women gave women the pill no no pharmaceutical company or or scientist or or altruistic male government um it was women who said no this is this is not right we're going to do it now scientists created the pill they did the invention it was women who got the motivation who secured the funding and who hired the scientists to apply what the scientists were discovering to reproductive freedoms was that also i mean that was a time where the march of science a bit like now, was going beyond the philosophical and ethical considerations of how that science might play out. And then what started to happen is inventiveness had to meet ethical questions and issues. And so whether they did that positively or reluctantly, in a way this was bound to happen, wasn't it? Um, In terms of the ethics? Well, in terms of if you can create a pill, at some point that's not going to be put in a drawer, is it? Um, no, true, but um, it was, I mean, this actually took place, the scientists who did the work had been thrown out of Harvard for um, basically being a bit of a maverick. Oh, so they were he- kind of heretics too, were they? Yeah, okay. um, and I mean, this was before they started working on the pill, uh, but what this scientist did uh, is he set up his own research institute. He decided to just branch out and do his own thing. And so when Margaret Sanger, the woman who um, the Pliss play is about, 
And when she located him, it meant that he didn't have to um, talk to anybody higher up because Harvard wouldn't have allowed him to do the research. They were talking... It was illegal. Um, in, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, having a conversation in 1917, not 1950, was about birth control was illegal. What we are doing right now was a criminal act. It's insane. And lots of things were illegal, weren't they? And then when science pushed in various ways, we were told we couldn't do it. Yeah, and, and the play actually... I mean, it's quite fascinating because the pill was, was approved in 1960, May the 9th, almost the anniversary. And what actually happened is... Um, <laughs> it's quite ironic, but the government were afraid of the Food and Drug Administration in America having more political power than they should have. And so bureaucratically they said that they couldn't let social... Um, considerations interfere with what they did and that meant that the Food Drug Administration had to allow the pill whereas if that bureaucratic red tape wasn't in place they would never have approved it because of all the ramifications about um, motherhood and and promiscuity and and all of those concerns so that's a real big red tape we love you moment. (laughs) In the story of your life how did you come to the moment where you decided to make this show? Well, two years ago, I heard a snippet on, on Radio 4 um, about um, women giving women the pill. It, I mean, it didn't phrase it that way, but um, it was a brief moment. And I was floored. I, I'm a scientist by background uh, and an actor, and, I just, and I'm a woman. And I was like, how can I not know that women gave women the pill? I even lived in America for years, and I had no idea. And um, I went home, read the, read, you know, got a biography, read the book, and was just like, no, I, I need to tell this story. And the theatre is an amazing medium to do it in. So, so the scientist and the woman were shocked into looking yeah. into this more, and then the woman and the actor decided to make some theatre. Exactly, exactly, because it's such a gripping story. I mean, the, I could, the piece could be eight hours long. Don't worry, it's not. <laughs> it's an hour 15. There are eight-hour shows here, <laughs> I think, at the Fringe. Um, because uh, this... She had such a life, and she is the equivalent to a, a great male campaigner, um, and yet she's, well, she's, she's just disregarded and, and ignored and vilified. Yeah, and beyond that story, who is she to you? Margaret Sanger is the woman who said enough is enough. She, she saw mothers who loved their children but didn't have the money or the health. You know, motherhood can be very difficult if you're not in good health. And she saw people dying and she didn't believe in abortion. She wanted to create a way to prevent. Um, men like sex, women like sex. Um, she actually adored men. This is a woman who loved men. Her first sort of way she came at this was because she wanted to enjoy sex. And so um, she's, an, she's a woman who said, I don't, I'm just going to ignore the fact that the world tells me I'm wrong. I'm just going to do what I think is necessary. She was very single-minded. She was like the queen on a chessboard. She manipulated people because she was so determined on her cause. She was adorable. She was very charming. Um, she had many lovers. One of them was H.G. Wells. Um, uh... And what kind of research did you do? Tell us about that process. I um, read an awful lot of books. There's actually a lot about her life available in print and online. The wonders, you you can go back into the archives of like the New York Times and there's also all her letters are available in print. So I went all to the sources um, to read her actual words. And what I've actually done in the play is I've incorporated an awful lot of her actual words. So her speeches, her um, statements. And the trick has been to create a character where my words fit with hers so that the audience doesn't know... 
which and, is which. And when do you, you decide as the artist sort of creating something and then the verbatim to come in, you know, the words that were spoken, how do you get that balance right? When do you decide, no, this needs to be rewritten and no, that, I just need to lift that off the page? I think it's when it speaks to you. Um, so one of her lines is, is women will never be free until they own and control their own bodies. And that's a very simple... You know, she, she was a very eloquent woman of simplicity, and that speaks to you as a woman, and it speaks to the story, so therefore it stays in. Whereas something that um, doesn't speak to what the play is about... When you're dealing with a woman who is so amazing, um, who had such a... a a life that could take you a month to tell. The trick is to find what the drama is and then to only focus in on, on the speeches she said that plays to that drama. Um, and so that's what we did. In the, yeah. And finally, as a loud cello starts to strike <laughs> up on one of the stages here, what would then be your invitation to uh, potential audiences to come and see uh, the woman who conceived the pill? Um, well, please come. We're at Exeter Street Hall. Um, Less the details, because oh, we'll okay. put all that. But what Sorry. would be your invitation for people My to come? My invitation would be, because this is an incredible true story. Um, and it is true. Uh, yes, there's some dramatisation, but every fact in the play is true. And it's, it, you'll never forget it. It will change your view of what women can do for women. And so really it's about empowerment. It's about us standing up and, and being proud and of our gender and also realising that we don't have to be um, at the mercy of other genders and, well, men, etc. We are our own people. And it, it's, a re it's a real celebration and um, fascinating. Everybody is just gripped. And I think the music in the background works in that invitation. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to Fringe Review. Thank you.